Welcome to Policy Speaking, a podcast from the Public Policy Forum. I'm Faust Bednar, and I'm taking over from Ed Greenspan this month. As part of the Public Policy Forum's Brave New Work project, we've spent the last couple of weeks exploring the trends and features shaping the future of work and looking at what policymakers, business leaders, academia, and others can do about it in order to ensure that no one's left behind. Today, we're talking about leveraging new data for better policy for workers. You can subscribe to Policy Speaking wherever you get your podcasts, or head on over to ppforum.ca, where you can also find PPF's research and writing, including all the latest Brave New Work content. Enjoy the show. We've become accustomed to public policy being a data-driven process, and our appetite for the information that can inform both our problem identification and our solution generation knows no bounds. But in a really interesting way, the policy maker of today faces a unique dilemma. More data is being created than ever before on the one hand. And on the other hand, it seems like no matter the policy problem we're interrogating, we'd like to see more data. I'm wondering, And today we're asking whether post-pandemic we will normalize integrating data that doesn't come from StatsCan or the banks into our policymaking processes as a useful complement. Now, there are benefits and limitations to complementing the surveys we've come to rely on, and that's part of exploring this. In this episode, we're going to take a quick look at how novel data has helped us to better understand the scale and magnitude of the effects of the pandemic for workers in Canada, by industry, by sector, and just in our everyday lives. In doing so, we'll consider the benefits of better or more alternative data for decision-making. Can new information that we didn't unlock before help us make better decisions for workers and change the labor market landscape for the better? And given that governments across all orders and across around the world have demonstrated more of an openness to alt data sets in the pandemic, how might we ask or encourage business leaders to participate in more sustained and responsible data sharing moving forward? In this episode of Brave New Work, we'll speak to Paul Cowan, the Chief Marketing Officer from Canadian accounting platform FreshBooks to learn how insights from their platform were a valued input to the provincial government's pandemic response. And that province is Ontario. We're also gonna speak to Caitlin Stanley from GoFundMe. Their CEO had a provocative op-ed in USA Today just a few months ago, reminding people that GoFundMe is not a social safety net. It's definitely an online platform that we can learn about in terms of what people are fundraising for, what their needs are, and where the urgency lies. Lastly, we'll check in with Murad Hamabi of The Logic. He's their Ottawa correspondent. And we'll talk a little bit about the Government of Canada's new partnership, where they've added credit and debit card data to economic monitoring amid the pandemic. What kind of insights can we ascertain from these new partnerships, new opportunities, and will they become a more permanent part of the policymakers toolkit? I'm joined by Paul Cowan. He's the Chief Marketing Officer of Canadian Accounting Platform or firm, FreshBooks. 
And we're going to talk a little bit about how insights from their platform have been a valued input to at least the provincial government's pandemic response here in Ontario, but maybe thinking and looking ahead to some of the other opportunities. Welcome, Paul. How are you? I'm doing great. It's, uh, it's great to be here. It's lovely to have you. So just to kick off, I mean, I'm excited and, and want to kind of jump right into it, but maybe you can tell us just a little bit about the kinds of insights that you started, you and your team started to observe on the FreshBooks platform as we started to see the economy totally changing in those early days of the pandemic and then maybe some of the trends that you've seen from then to now. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, being a, a accounting platform and having a lot of uh, small and medium businesses enter their income and, and their expense data in, into our system, it's it, we just got a huge understanding of how people are making money and where they're spending their money. So um, when the pandemic was happening uh, or started to happen and, and lockdown started to go into place, we were, we were actually just really kind of interested in seeing how are businesses being affected by this? Um, you know, clearly at that time, you know, last March, lots of businesses were having to do reforecasts and and try to figure out how they were going to be managing through this thing, and and us included. So so we were actually first using the data to help kind of us decide what we were going to do, and then then we realized, you know, we we had a lot of really really interesting trends that we were seeing. So, you know, we started looking at, at different factors, like, you know, what type of kind of performance metrics or health metrics uh, were, were coming out. And, and there was some obvious things happening, like there was some declines, uh, especially through uh, initial lockdowns in terms of, of, you know, clients that customers were adding revenue or, or invoicing uh, that was going out the door, as well as on the expense profile. So they just, a lot of, a lot of businesses just stopped spending money. So, um, you know, we saw a, a lot of really interesting initial trends. Universally, everything went down across the board. We, we have uh, customers in 160 plus countries. So, you know, when we looked at the US versus the UK versus Canada, we just looked at, at what the recovery patterns are starting to look like. And, and interestingly, you know, the, the US recovered much faster. Uh, the UK and Canada had very similar profiles in terms of recovery. It took about twice as long for businesses to recover back to sort of normal-ish spending levels or normal-ish revenue levels. And then, you know, we looked at if what was happening across different categories, like the construction industry. It had an initial huge hit, but then rebounded back and, and is still extremely strong. Uh, we saw the women-owned businesses were more negatively impacted than businesses owned by men longer time to to recover and, and the recovery didn't hit uh, historical norms in terms of what women were making. So so lots of interesting stuff and, and you know really it's endless in terms of what we could go into based on subsector and, and and that type of thing. Well I suppose maybe that's the role for that kind of dialogue or or partnership with government in terms of understanding, you know, where the need is to drill down because absolutely, you know, with that federal task force on the economic recovery in women, I could see how that insight and input into how women-owned businesses are affected, maybe even also in the construction industry, is, is you know, a really useful input. It's not the whole story, but it's much more dynamic. And the, the data comes at, you can see it much faster than, you know, we've been discussing like the monthly Statistics Canada surveys and how we can better kind of supplement those. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's like, yeah. Still love StatsCan though, totally a StatsCan stan as well. So the platform started sharing 
aggregated anonymized data with the province of Ontario as a resource during the pandemic. Can you tell us a bit about how that partnership started, how it came about? Yeah, sure. I mean, it was pretty organic. We're we're in discussions with various governments, both you know, in, in Canada, the provincial or for at the federal level, and then um, of course down in the states and and in some mm-hmm. of our other international markets. And we do outreach pretty pretty constantly. We also run um, you know a series of roundtables uh, where we put business owners in front of policy and decision makers so that that you know there could be fairly direct dialogue and and through some of the just natural discussions we we revealed that uh, we had some of this data and we gave them some of the insights around what we were seeing at, at a sector level and they they were very interested in it so they mm-hmm. they immediately saw the the opportunity to be able to use the data to help influence some of the policy and decision making that they were putting forth and you know i think the the really compelling part of all of this stuff is like you know the data is never going to tell you what's happening i think that yeah. it it often needs to be augmented with other, whether it's interviews or other data sets or survey data to, to try to understand what's going on. But, you know, what we're really excited about is just the opportunity for, for folks to take it. And then, and then we can even try to help them and in, in understand the types of things that are going on. So, you know, we do a lot of analysis on the data with our data science team. So we, we often offer up any type of resources that we have or, or say, Hey, where, where are the things and what are the, what are the questions that, that other folks are looking to answer as well? So we can, we can help guide some of those decisions. And then I wonder if you can speak to, you mentioned connecting your clients to decision makers during the pandemic and, and full disclosure, I, I attended a couple of these sessions. They were fascinating. I do use FreshBooks for like freelancing invoices. Maybe I should have said that at the start and I like it quite a bit. So, you know, you're talking to a, a happy customer as well, but what was it, what was it like to put out that invitation to you know, entrepreneurs and business owners that you might not have dialogued with previously and, and sort of say, hey, we can be we can be this vector to a direct dialogue with with politicians and decision makers. I'm, I'm really fascinated by that, too. Yeah. So, uh, you know, some of the things that we try to do from a company standpoint is unlike other accounting platforms, like, you know, some some folks like QuickBooks or Zero, like those those are great platforms primarily built like for the accountant first, where ours is built right. for the owner first. And, and you know, so we, we really are about how we can empower owners, be able to keep them close to their, their finances without having to be a financial manager. So, and then, and then as, as businesses mature, then, then they could bring their accountants into the platform and it can do, do the types of things that they do. So, you know, that being said, you know, what we really kind of focus on is how can we keep close to those owners and, and how can we yeah. make sure that that we're doing stuff in a, in a real way, in a real grassroots way. So, you know, we've, we've used to run lots of events when we could do events. And, and so this was just kind of a natural extension of that. So, you know, this program called the Your Voice program um, was just really about how we could, uh, how we could get uh, business owners uh, to have direct dialogue um, mm-hmm. on some of the things that that really really matter to them. So, you know, I think I think for us the important thing was about just being able to create like a forum, um, yeah, and facilitate those forums because, 
you know, the one thing that most small business owners will do is, is, is always go back and work on their business. And, and so, yeah. you know, without, without the things that are created for them like this, they're a little bit kind of, they may be important, but they're not the types of things that they're going to focus on in a day in and day out basis is by providing these areas for them to be able to easily access some, some of the folks within, within various levels of government was, is really important. And, and it's something that we've started. It's something that we're going to continue to do. We've had representation from different levels within the mm -hmm. provincial and within the federal levels and, and folks across all the different parties so far. So we're pretty, um, pretty pleased with, with the engagement so far. Yeah, no, it's, and it's fascinating because all kinds of businesses and entrepreneurship are captured on the platform. I, I, maybe I'm stating the obvious, right? But in a moment where we encourage firms to go digital, your customers might have, you see that, you see that commercial rent, you see that rent on their, you know, expenses versus maybe new starts and kind of what we can learn about what businesses were started in the pandemic or were we seeing more independent contractors? All of those dimensions are productive inputs into the policymaking scene. They don't, as you said, necessarily stand alone. They have to be augmented. They have to be complemented. But it, it also, I think it tells us a lot about how businesses are faring, but also in terms of those business starts, you know, when people are feeling safe enough to take that entrepreneurship risk and start something new in an uncertain time. Absolutely. And, it, and it's kind of interesting because, you know, having uh, marketing to small business owners is very difficult to do. Like, and just yeah. understanding how all of these different types of categories and all of these different types of owners actually, you know, run their business. So, you know, when, when you're trying to then write policy, for mm -hmm. folks that, it, and you just really, it's hard to understand the mindset of an owner and some of the challenges that they're facing. There's a lot of assumptions that people are making, like, hey, they know exactly how much money they're making. And, yeah. and, and that is an absolutely a myth. There are so many uh, folks in the, in the small business space, whether they're a solopreneur or a full-time person or, or maybe running a, a, a business with, with 10 employees, they may not know exactly what's happening in their business on a day in a day out basis. So if you think of like the immediate COVID actions that were put into place, they were all like income replacement things that assumed everybody kind of knew exactly what their revenue dip was. So if I wanted to go and apply for some uh, a COVID relief package or, or a wage subsidy, I'd have I would have had to have all of my books in perfect order to be able to submit all of the documentation. And so then when you have people who are like, you know, trying to do things like um, help manage uh, the education if they've got two kids at home and plus yeah. doing all these other things to be able to do this stuff is incredibly difficult. So this is just where I think when you when you start to peel back the layers of the onion around how complex it is to run a, a business and how, you know, a lot of companies just don't even have access, like don't even have any digital toolkit that's helping them manage their, uh, manage their, their finances to do things that the government is putting in place is actually really, really challenging for them to do. Yeah. So they can't even take the time to go and apply for the types of relief um, programs that actually exist. So, so just getting like some of these truths in front of some of the policy decision makers and, and getting, hearing it from the folks who are experiencing it firsthand, I think are, are really, really important. Well, Paul, if, if I may, I mean, thinking ahead to, to what the future of FreshBooks linking into policymaking could be like, it's easy for me to imagine almost like an API model, or, you know, I'm surprised that the federal government didn't partner more closely with FreshBooks to sort of say, here's an alert, here's what you're eligible for, yeah, based on some of the data that we're seeing. Like, how, how do we get to that? Is that too, 
Is that too much of a daydream? Do you see that on the horizon? No, 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 absolutely. Like I, I think, you know, we're trying to make our data way more accessible, not only to the broader public, but to our customers so that so that they can kind of see how they're faring versus other folks that are in their sector, in their region, wherever, whatever they might want to be wanting to kind of pivot the data on. And so I think those, those things are incredibly uh, powerful. You know, there are limitations with what we have. So we yeah. service, mainly service-based businesses. So it's it's folks who are, you know, it's basically not retail, not restaurants, not yeah. e-commerce. Like we, we are, we kind of look at the broader population of people like who are, who are doing services, construction, trades, um, you know, uh, professional services, uh, anything kind of within that area. So, so even our data set is going to be somewhat limited, even though it's got lots and lots of information in it. We still also need to partner with some of the other folks who, who might have a, a retail platform or an e-com mm-hmm. platform and bring all of this together in, in much yeah. more of a real-time format. So I think it's, it's somewhat incumbent on folks like myself to reach out to other other people within the fast industry to say, hey, let's get together. How can we build yeah. a co- coalition of companies to help do some uh, a little bit more lobbying with the government? You know, if if I think there's just shy of around 50 percent of, of, of small businesses don't even use any kind of tracking or accounting systems wow. today. So okay. it's like, well, <laughs> how do we get those people actually using these systems so that when we yeah. could get a bit more of a robust data set? But then so, you know, and what are what are the types of things that the government could put in place to to make sure that businesses are going digital. So, you know, I think we've mm-hmm. through the pandemic, we really over rotated on the the, the power of e-commerce. And, and that's been a, a great success story for a lot of businesses who are able to shift very quickly. But then there's like a lot of other businesses who are just not benefiting like this or cannot totally. shift their business to a, an e-commerce model. So so now we're trying to figure out how, like how can we make sure we're exposing the entire story and that we're not just focused on like making sure restaurants and retailers are are staying open. Absolutely. Well, I'm sure you noticed that partial announcement in the in the most recent federal budget around investing in young people to kind of help businesses go digital and certainly the just the accounting aspect and kind of keeping your books up to date is is part of going online and and making that transition. So I'm looking forward to seeing how how the government unlocks that. And I, I love what you've outlined in terms of, you know, thinking bigger and broader now and kind of that kind of informal coalition with similar companies in the space that can add a more fulsome picture. Yeah. Um, I'll keep my eyes out for, yeah. for that. I wonder as we wrap up, if you wanted to say anything about how Canada is faring in a global context, or again, anything that had jumped out or surprised you and your team, that's Canada specific. I wasn't yeah, sure. surprised about the construction stuff, but Hey. Yeah. It's it, it's interesting. So I think what we're seeing is like I think most of us would notionally uh, assume this, but it's basically that lockdowns are having a very detrimental effect on businesses. What we have seen is that in markets where lockdowns have lifted, revenue goes up, um, mm-hmm. spending goes up. In markets where these the lockdowns keep lasting, we see a, a, a continual decline in terms of, of revenue and expenses. And and I I talk about expenses as well because like small mm-hmm. businesses are this fuel for the economy as well. Like a yeah. lot of that spending goes back into local economies. Something around sixty six or sixty seven percent of of every dollar that's made in a in an SMB goes back to the local economy. 
So, wow. so we really have to be be mindful of like what is this impact that's going to happen to the to the economy overall, and, and for us to kickstart it again is going to be be challenged. So I think when we're specifically looking at places like Ontario, where we've had some some pretty long term um, uh, lockdowns, we're going to have to be really thinking about what we're going to do to to make sure that we can can get the businesses kickstarted again. So it's it's all those folks who are servicing all these businesses that are also suffering and, and and how do we just make sure that that we have programs that are focused on helping support them through their their rebuild phase hmm. well paul i want to salute you and the freshbooks team for stepping up during the pandemic for inviting the voices of your clients to directly connect with government uh, during a time where government wasn't necessarily putting out that invitation and also just celebrate the this data partnership which is which is historic and i think going to be hopefully, you know, keep being a key benchmark and key input into a lot of our decision-making in Canada, be it provincially or federally, or I'm sure there are municipalities that are really curious about, you know, entrepreneurship and the the kind of work that's going on there. So yeah, quite excited. It was so fun to get to talk to you. Thank you so much. And we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. And thanks for your interest in this topic. It's, it's, uh, It's really important. I'm joined by Caitlin Stanley. She's the regional manager for GoFundMe Canada. Welcome, Caitlin. How are you doing? Good. How about yourself? I'm doing all right, given the circumstances. One thing I wanted to start off with you, Caitlin, is this, I sort of want to say summer, but what is time? It could have been earlier this year. There was an op-ed from the CEO of GoFundMe in USA Today. Um, The title was, Hello, Congress. Americans need help, and we can't do your job for you. It was February. Good job, Fast, with what the meaning of time is. It emphasized that the platform GoFundMe is not a social safety net. I wonder if, just to kick off, you could speak a little bit to how that very provocative op-ed was received in the United States, and then we'll we'll bring it to a Canadian context in terms of what, what policymakers can start to learn from that platform. Yeah, um, you know, I think, frankly, some people were pretty surprised to see a fundraising company like ourselves Mm -hmm. make such a bold statement. And, you know, for context, Congress was in the middle of debating a relief package. Right. And while they were in the middle of that debate, every day we see floods of new fundraisers started for basic necessities. I think it was October 2020 that we started the food rent monthly bills category. Um, something that we didn't see a demand for until this year. Wow. So it kind of felt like a a responsibility to be able to illuminate how urgent (laughs) these needs were. And we have this unique perspective that a lot of other companies and people don't, uh, aren't able to see. And so Mm -hmm. I think Tim and the company felt it was important for us to be able to urge Congress with the data and frankly, the um, incredible amount of volume that we've seen uh, to pass a relief package and make it known that we aren't there to be a substitute. We're there to be, you know, additive in terms of helping people fundraise for school projects, uh, but we're not, we weren't built for basic necessities. Yeah, I, I see it as a really provocative piece of policy leadership and also sharing that information on campaigns. I mean, the Canadian context is a little bit different, I think, primarily because of the structure of our healthcare system. But 
my understanding is we still see similar campaigns to fill some of those gaps. For instance, dental care, pharma care. Maybe we can we can turn a little bit to some of the I'll I'll call them policy gaps um, in income support or access to education or other labor market related issues that you're able to see on the crowdfunding platform that you know politicians and decision makers may never really see unless it's a, a link shared on Twitter. Exactly. And, you know, what's interesting in all the countries we operate in around 20 medical continues to be one of our largest categories. And that's okay. including all of our countries that have universal healthcare systems like mm. Canada. So what's interesting there is that clearly there's no utopian system. Um, yeah. You one fold of it is that you see a lot of fundraising for the ancillary costs. So travel, wage loss, Mm-hmm. And then you start to get into where there isn't as much, you know, federal funding, rare diseases. That's something our top mm-hmm. three fundraisers of 2020 were for all babies diagnosed with spinal muscular atrophy in which there was no, at the time there was no coverage or support. And it was a $3 million treatment plan and cost, which is just mind blowing to see that. And so that's in Canada. That's in Canada. Yeah. What were the other two top in 2020? So the top three were all three different babies. Oh, all three different babies. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. With the same rare disease. You know, what's really interesting there is that these babies were able to raise millions. We've actually had 15 million raised on the platform for SMA mm-hmm. just in its in and of itself, which of all of the kind of medical trends that we've seen, this has standed alone as something incredibly powerful. Mm-hmm. With that said, at this point, Health Canada has actually gone on to cover it. Great. You, which has been amazing because, you know, there was a lot of press and there was a lot of attention because these fundraisers were having to raise so much and, you know, parents having to raise $3 million is an incredible feat. But then you're also starting to see fundraisers started for folks who don't quite meet the criteria of being mm-hmm. able to get access to that drug. So there's sort of this never ending sense of need when you're looking at some of these rare diseases or some of these uh, things that aren't so simply covered in the medical community. So that's kind of why we continue to see medical as huge across the board and then pharmacare. Well, in that sense, it's almost, you know, GoFundMe thinking of it, not as an indicator, just of need or deficit, but also a proxy for implementation and design because that's a really interesting insight, right? Um, in terms of just not quite fitting fitting the criteria. I wonder if GoFundMe observed similar trends to the US in terms of fundraising for you know, basic necessities during the pandemic or, or what kind of shifts you might have seen on the platform um, when you take a look at that national data. And maybe we can start to think what policymakers could learn from that, if anything if anything at all, not, not just giving insights to insurers. That's for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So in terms of looking at basic necessities in Canada, we've seen, I would say like a steady, small, small, but steady growth within that food rent bills category, which is kind of our best sense of uh, seeing how many people are fundraising. And while I don't think it's quite as pronounced as us, clearly there's still a need there. And, you know, what's interesting is you see, you see it increase during the times of lockdowns or there's 
Okay. The ebb and flow is usually in response to, you know, when things go into lockdown and people lose their jobs. Um, so in the winter time, we saw a pretty big uptick in Canada within that category. I also think what's really interesting is being able to look at how many donations and fundraisers were started for food banks. Typically, we see a lot of fundraisers started for health-related charities. This year, it really changed in terms of people's uh, people fundraising for local food banks. So there's clearly, you know, from the support end, people wanting to give to that. But there's also, you know, food banks going out there and saying that their demand has, you know, tripled or whatever it actually ends up being. And so you see both sides of the coin of people wanting to give. And then you see that people actually fundraising to put food on the table or choosing between having to buy medicine and put food on the table. Wow. Wow. So coming off that, that letter to Congress, is there a shift at all in terms of how GoFundMe might dialogue with governments? You, you do a great, I think, an annual report, or is it every five years on kind of top, those top trends in terms of campaigns? Uh, has anything changed in the pandemic in terms of sharing those insights that you're seeing so that we can learn more about what Canada needs or what people want? Yeah, well, we do do an annual report. Right. And I think that's a conversation, frankly, that it's, that it's at its infancy. This was really yeah. the first time that we got to that kind of boiling point of pressure that we wanted to make a statement like that. So I think this is just the beginning of that. I mm-hmm. you know, believe that it's an incredibly powerful tool to use in terms of shaping public policy. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we've quite felt that sense of need until this year. So yeah, hopefully more to come there. But nothing sort of kind of set in the plans that I know. No, no, of. that's okay. But having yeah. these conversations is a good start. No, totally, totally. Yeah, I, th- I personally think of GoFundMe as you know as this kind of super social safety net. I think it's amazing to see strangers support each other in those times of need and kind of become captivated by people's campaigns. And at the same time, you know, I wish people didn't have to, of course, raise money for you know, in those, in those times of need, but I'm glad that they have it as an option. So to that end, in terms of what, what makes a successful campaign, you know, other than being baby related, I'm being a bit facetious there. Is there anything the platform does to help people in terms of constructing a a compelling campaign online? Cause it it strikes me that is a bit of a digital skill in terms of Mm -hmm. having cool photos or being able to keep up with thanking people or, I'm not sure. I've never, I've never run a campaign myself, but I, I have donated to quite a bit of GoFundMe's and we can talk about that. I'm like, I don't know why I'm mentioning that I've donated. That's my only experience with it. So yeah. <laughs> One in seven Canadians have donated. Yeah. So you've, okay. You're I'm in, in good the company. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's a great question. You know, I think GoFundMe is constantly trying to iterate its product as being incredibly simple to use, really easy to share and make people successful fundraisers. You know, people don't start GoFundMe's lightly and we take that very seriously at the company. Uh, You know, we have a a team of people dedicated to creating content that's just making it as simple as possible to feel, people feel comfortable with fundraising tips, best practices, where to share if you don't have social media. You Mm. know, there's different 
of course, different gaps of technology. And then when you look at the, the donator flow, making sure that in every country that we're in, we have you know relevant options for people to pay in that makes sense to them. And I think that's something that we're continuing to look to expand and make it as accessible as possible. And we really do, to your points, it's, a, it's like a storytelling platform. Mm-hmm. You read every day some of the most compelling emotional stories, but that doesn't necessarily come easy to anyone. Uh, you know, we have some things built into the product, but we also have a very robust team of customer service people that are there to help in terms of helping people craft their story. And my advice to people is always, one, make sure that you're clear and transparent of what you need, what the funds are being used for. Two is why it's important to you. You know, people donate to the person. So if you're fundraising for a charity, of course, if it's a personal cause, that's different, but making sure that people understand why it's important to you. And then, you know, using images and videos to tell your story, anything like that are really good tips to making sure that it's a successful fundraiser. That's fascinating. I'm so glad to learn that you, you know, peek under the hood a little bit in terms of how, how the platform facilitates that kind of storytelling and sharing. So maybe to wrap up, you know, GoFundMe, it's not a social safety net. It cannot do the job of governments, but at the same time, I think it's an untapped or, you know, underappreciated resource to governments in terms of really identifying with concrete evidence where there's need, where there's gaps in our in our social programs, in our health programs. And I think as we as we look to alternate data sources and kind of push beyond, you know, polling, I personally would like to see insights from GoFundMe as an input to our policy campaign. So I'm looking forward to your next annual report mm-hmm. and grateful for the work that you do in Canada. It's such a delight to speak with you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I'm joined by Murad Hamadi. He's the Logics Ottawa correspondent, and we're going to talk about some changes when it comes to the federal government partnering and accessing new kinds of data, new information. Welcome, Murad. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me on. It's so nice to talk to you. You wrote about a new partnership last year in April of 2020, where Ottawa added credit card and debit card data to kind of factor into their economic monitoring amid the pandemic. And as we record this, we're still in the pandemic. Could you tell us a little bit about that partnership? I feel like it went a little bit unnoticed and might be underappreciated. Yeah, so the the partnership is basically, um, so it involves Visa and Indrac, which are two mm-hmm. payment networks. So, you know, people will be familiar with them from, with those companies from their credit and debit cards. But those companies are basically um, providing, uh, and it's important to say aggregated high level yeah. information. So not, mm-hmm. you know, the personal information of customers to uh, Finance Canada, which is the federal finance department in order for the economic and fiscal policy branch, which is one of the major sort of policy making branches of the uh, the federal government in inside finance, uh, in order for them to have a better picture of what's going on in the economy during the pandemic. And mm-hmm. 
Um, the the context here that that's sort of uh, useful to understand is that, you know, a lot of the way that the government gathers information, particularly Statistics Canada historically, is through surveys. Uh, and surveys are often monthly and, you know, they require participation from the businesses or the individuals involved. Uh, but during the pandemic, if you think back, whatever, it's been 15 months now, everything was changing so quickly, particularly for industries that were on the front lines like retail or uh, hospitality, you know, restaurants and, and hotels, that that lag, uh, the, you know, the, the one month uh, timelines, like the one month frequency, and the yeah. fact that agency statistical agencies often take two or three months to validate their data, right. that lag was just way too long. So, right. You know, uh, it did. It did you no good to know in June that a whole bunch of businesses had shut down in April because yeah. those people were out of work and the government needed to act. So, yeah, in those ways, I mean, look, the partnership makes a ton of sense. I think it's quite savvy. But what was striking to me, if I can insert my own reactions, is that there was no outcry from consumers, at least none that I detected, and that you know, reading your coverage of this partnership of course, brought me back, you know, flashbacks to the kind of, I'll say, bungled uh, StatsCan partnership with banks in 2019. So how did we go from this space where it was decided that Statistics Canada overreached with a plan to collect banking information and kind of totally had to retreat? At that point, I thought we wouldn't see any kind of data partnership between, again, this isn't between banks, but between financial services actors, just more dynamic, real-time information. How do you explain that gap? Is it purely the, the emergency context of the pandemic or is there something else at play? I think there's basically two factors. One okay. is nobody knew. So the, the data sharing has started in April, 2020. I published mm -hmm. my story in April, 2021. Uh, yeah. So that's a year. And I don't think anyone else has reported on it. And I don't say that as a, as you know, a, a self promotion thing. It's just, it wasn't announced. It wasn't, it wasn't made public. It wasn't treated okay. as a big deal. And, okay. you know, if you think back to that StatCan pilot project, the thing mm -hmm. that really blew that up was StatCan had, you know, had, been, had talked to the banks about it. But what happened was that um, Global News got the information that they were doing this. They published an initial story and it kind of spiraled mm. from there. It wasn't something that was publicly announced and then was reacted to. So uh, what, one very practical reason is that I don't think a lot of people are aware of this, but it, there is a second factor. And I think that that sort of mitigates that, which is things have changed in the two years since. A couple of things have changed. And some yeah. of that is pandemic specific. So at the start of the pandemic, because of, again, this lag, uh, mm. this lag problem, what you started seeing was a lot of news uh, outlets, but mm -hmm. also economists, like well-regarded economists, taking into account a lot of data from a new, new and different sources. So okay. there was a lot of focus in the early days of the pandemic on open table data, for example. So open oh, table yeah. is the, right, the, bo the booking platform. <laughs> and yeah. like you had these open table graphs that showed like activity and uh, yeah, these hand motions are very useful for a podcast uh, <laughs> and completely audio medium. But, you know, the graph kind of going along, chugging along and then dropping yeah. straight off a cliff, right? Uh, you were seeing those in a lot of media sources. You were seeing all kinds of Google and Apple mobility data, all that kind of stuff. And one thing that started happening was a lot of banks by themselves started publishing aggregate statistics about card usage. 
So, you know, they issue banks themselves issue credit and debit cards to their yep. uh, to their customers and they can see you know obviously they have a record of every transaction that is conducted on those cards so they were aggregating that information and saying you know in retail we've seen this kind of a change in you know hmm. in this sector we've seen this kind of a change we've seen this kind of a change for online stores we've seen this in bricks and mortar and they started proactively publishing that information on like a weekly basis like scotia bank has a really uh, useful monitor that they put out i think it's now dropped to biweekly but they were doing this kind of without without like uh waiting for without anyone's fanfare. permission yeah without yeah. fanfare and without anybody making a big deal of it because it was very clear that the data was aggregated yeah and they made very clear how they were using it all of that was was kind of put out in the world so then you know to find out whatever a year after that that the card networks which mm-hmm. underlie all of this are doing a similar thing with the government there's some amount of sort of social license that has yeah. emerged over the last year where it's like if you need this data to make your pandemic response better at a time when we know that the pandemic response is kind of all important then fine you know that 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 kind of makes sense one other thing i just add so i talked to don drummond who used to be really high yeah. up in in finance and he's had a long and varied career in in sort of the financial services world as well and he pointed out that this isn't actually completely novel so in the late 1980s in in sort of one of the series of financial crashes he said he used to do this at when he ran what what turned into the economic and fiscal policy branch today uh, and yeah. he said he used to call up the bank's cfo's himself to ask for this aggregate level information and then write it down you know and he was just okay. saying like the he was kind of joking like the only real thing the the big thing that changes it's a lot easier now and they can just send over their spreadsheets but these kinds of like moment in time sort of emergency collaborations or partnerships or you know just assistance is not entirely unprecedented and it generally sort of happens i mean i don't know how many people know don ramond was making those calls in the 1980s it probably just passes under under notice Yeah, well everyone now that you spilled the tea on that who who I did not see that Don Drummond insight coming. No, but more seriously, thinking aside from how, you know, cool and kind of low key it is that banks are now instead of just sharing this information with Don Drummond over the phone, voluntarily making this information accessible to the general public, to researchers, to thinkers, to reporters and and Ottawa correspondence. Um, I think it's interesting to look ahead to whether we'll see some inertia with these partnerships. You know, is this the new normal in terms of data inputs to policymaking? And then secondly, I want to just kind of explore what kind of insights do you imagine the government is able to derive from this information? Because it strikes me that at the start of the pandemic, we really, really cared about just the scale and scope of what it meant to kind of pause the economy. But now we're able to see, you know, are people shopping local is it mostly the dominant big firms that are that are truly winning you know what's the geography of expenditure now i'm answering my own question which makes for a hideous interview but yeah what what do you think we're actually learning from this because the partnership persists which indicates to me that it's interesting you know if you think about that stats can pilot so stats can has been moving increasingly to adopt more and more what might be called administrative data which is like okay. um, data that comes from companies so so in contrast to survey data right so instead of putting right. out a survey responses you use the actual data that's created by things like transactions by uh, and from other sources they do they're doing some like 
cool stuff with like using satellites, like weather information around crop yields. I don't fully understand it. I'm very much a city boy, but something in that area. Anyway, they've got all of these. Um, they're, they're basically trying to extend that kind of data gathering because, you know, it in some cases it can be more reliable than surveys. Um, but mm-hmm. also like, you know, we know, you know like as anybody who's gotten a call from a polling agency can, can attest, survey response rates have been going down over the years. People aren't as willing to spend time chatting on the phone you know, millennials, we hate them, phone calls. So all of that stuff is happening. And StatScan is looking to get more and more administrative data to be able to fill in some of these gaps, but also because it it can provide more insight uh, into what's happening. Uh, You know, it can be faster, all of those sorts of things. So the the chief statistician, Anil Arora, uh, has been pretty clear that he's open to these kinds of partnerships. He has some reservations that he uh, expressed to me and some other journalists late last year about just, you know, how much people may rely on these reports and things that are being published openly, you know, how much policymaking can you do on the back of open table or even the, even the, um, the car data banks, because it's a limited sample, right? It's those, it's the customers of those banks. It's the patrons of the restaurants that open table sort of provides software for it's a biased sample every time. So you you have to, he was basically making the point, you have to take those things into consideration. It's important for people to have sort of literacy about how this data and uh, how statistics should be read. Not not to say that they're not valuable, but they need to be understood in context. And ideally they need to, you know, in his view, they need to partner with StatsCan, which can then sort of make this bigger picture. So that's part one. Part two of the ongoing and kind of what, you know, the government might be learning. It's interesting to, you know, so for example, so the uh, reporting that I did was based in large part off some internal documents that I got by access to information requests. And the, they, they sort of detail what was being, what was being shared. Uh, and in Intrac's case, so debit payments, uh, for example, yeah. Intrac included, so the total number of transactions and the amount spent uh, broken down by province, by merchant category. So that would be like restaurant or, uh, you know, hotel, retail, so on. Uh, and then even by market segment. So mm. one, the example in the document, which I thought was kind of interesting was like dollars spent by debit cards in fast food stores in Manitoba. So that's fairly detailed. And, you know, that allows you to learn things like, okay, if they're spending at fast food, you know, uh, has fast food recovered faster than uh, sit down or quick service dining, you know, those yeah. categories. And then that, that has implications for like the people employed in those places, right? The, the state of the local economy. Uh, these are trends that they can map out. It will perhaps not surprise you specifically to learn that the government has been incredibly forthcoming with information about how they're using this data, what yeah. they're on. And, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if some of that stems from that sort of backlash to stat, the StatCan experience, you know, yeah. it, it has created a little bit of a chill for wanting to talk openly about these, you know, the first instinct is always to say, like, we're not doing anything wrong. We're using this data right. within the course of agreements, we're not using any end user data. And that all seems to be like, very well substantiated on both sides. But it does feed into this bigger these bigger models that the government is using to try and map where we're at. Yeah, I totally take those points. Of course, you know, all those new data inputs, grain of salt, there's some self-selection at play. I mean, the Yelp data on business closures is also interesting, but of course you have to be on Yelp or have someone have put your company on Yelp and then also noted that it has closed. Um, But again, it's part of that pulse check kind of getting that, um, I don't know, adding dimension to, to, 
the vibe or to the context. Murad, are there other data partnerships that you'd like to see from Canadian tech companies going forward with the government to better understand the dynamics and evolution of, of Canada's economy? Well, one thing that, I, uh, that I've been interested in for the last little while is, so I cover what we call writ large the innovation economy, which is, you know, it's whatever we want it to be on any given day. But one thing that has really been uh, striking is the lack of data the lack of specific data in segments of that. So, you know, uh, we don't necessarily have fantastic data on on the hiring landscape for these companies, which is a, a frequent subject of contention. In the VC landscape, you know, we have a lot of private data providers that provide some of this data publicly, but there's not like one integrated master. You know, there's not, there's like four or five reports that you read every quarter and they all are mostly in line, but not, not quite in line. So I would, I think there would be value in more, um, more data coming into a place like Stack Can that can rationalize all of it uh, around that ecosystem. On the consumer side, you know, there are certainly things that can be done to speed up. So the fastest major economic reporting that we typically see, or that most people tend to pay attention to is labor force survey, right? Which is monthly. And that is, you know, there, there, there are problems with it. And there's, there's been a lot of work on that. But, you know, for things like GDP, for uh, things like sector-specific data, it tends to take longer. And I mm. think if there are ways that administrative data can, can shrink some of those timelines, you know, I don't, the pandemic was obviously a one-off uh, in some ways where the scale of the movement up or down was so yeah. significant in any given week that it was hard to keep track of. Like we were turning to things like the EI filing numbers, right? Instead of the yeah. LFS to try and get some sense. Absent another sort of disaster of this sort, that level of week to week movement seems unlikely to persist. You know, Even now, uh, things like employment and GDP are, are on a sort of trajectory and we can tell with lockdowns how they're going up or down. But <laughs> I don't see why there's any reason why we need to go back to a two month wait for GDP numbers. Like StatCan already is producing what they call like their like projections or estimates, um, which uh, they do based on their surveys, but they use like, they're like good predictions. They're not, right. they, don't, they don't claim that they're the absolute number, but they, they're like good predictions. Those kinds of things need to persist and where administrative data can hook into that. I think it just makes that time faster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know, have you come across this in your reporting in terms of the, the banking and the credit card data, you know, is this something that's just the new normal with in terms of other countries, in terms of making not necessarily directly informing policy decisions, but just getting a sense of the landscape? Uh, I do know that in the States, the U.S. central banking system is a little different than ours. You, right. know, you have all of those independent feds or semi-independent yeah. feds that are lung together. And I think yeah, the, yeah, Minneapolis, yeah. the Minneapolis Fed in particular, I'm maybe getting this wrong, but the Minneapolis Fed has been doing a whole bunch of work using foster data sources like this, integrating it into their work, but being really transparent about how they're doing it, You know where mm. these feed in, what conclusions they're drawing for that kind of data. So it's definitely happening, uh, you know, at least in that example. Uh, I haven't come across others, but I think that one's interesting and maybe a good way to model in that in that they're being that transparent about what is you know what's coming in what's coming out the yeah. other thing i'd say is you know at the point at which i wrote this piece which was in april so uh last month i cannot believe it was last month uh these these partnerships were still ongoing but if you think like 
in the Don Drummond case in the 80s, it was only for the length of the, the sort of crisis and then it stopped. So okay. it, it does, it is an open question as to whether this will continue once, you know, whatever, at whatever point the government decides the pandemic is over, whether finance will continue, I think that that's an open question. But, but clearly they found it valuable in this amount of time. So no, they found it valuable. It doesn't seem to have been very difficult for them to set up. There has been no outcry. I don't know why they wouldn't necessarily keep doing it. Look, it seems to me that this will become a new normal. You know, earlier in this episode, we spoke with FreshBooks and GoFundMe about mm-hmm. their, their ability to share data, insights that they observe on their platforms. And there is a little bit of a mix in terms of what's directly shared with government and then what's also just, as you pointed out with the banks, freely shared, accessible to everyone online and something we can all kind of chew on and try to use in our sense making. So it's definitely something I'm going to be keeping an eye on. And in terms of Canadian companies, I, of course, think that we can learn even more from a platform like Shopify in terms of the changing dynamics of entrepreneurship and maybe how entrepreneurship has evolved in this pandemic. Um, But they also do that excellent annual report with Deloitte. So for our listeners, you can read Murad's work in The Logic and follow him online what is your Twitter handle? I don't know if our listeners are even big Twitter people, but we're about to find out. Policy Twitter is is hot. Um, yeah. It, it happens. Uh, it's M-U-R-A-D-H-E-M. Cool. Murad Hem. And my DMs are open, but I mostly don't respond to people. So I don't know what folks will do with that. That's a good invitation to get a DM from someone. No, I'm just kidding. It was so great to listen to you think through this with me. And thank you so much for your reporting and looking forward to reading and learning more. Thanks for talking to me about it. We've pointed to a range of data sources that have proven fruitful and interesting in the pandemic. Insights that come from accounting firm FreshBooks, areas of need that tug at the heartstrings, but also give us information about where there's policy need or implementation gaps from GoFundMe, and had a quick think on banking you know, and transaction data that the government of Canada is already accessing. There've been so many alternative data sources pointed to in the pandemic, all of which can be a continued resource as we seek a more fulsome, dynamic, real-time picture of the economy be it in a time of growth or a time of shocks. Yelp data on business closures. Again, GoFundMe on immediate needs, where those gaps are in the social safety net. Etsy sellers have been pointed to, you know, the growth of new side hustles as an indicator, not just of entrepreneurship, but of people needing supplementary income. eBay, a platform where people might go to sell items for quick cash, Again, potentially in a time of need, though this is also a normal online activity or behavior. New York Times Magazine, and we'll share this link in other promotional places for the podcast, but it surveyed Reddit communities and discussions of government programs. Now, while it's wonderful that communities of care can exist online in forums to help people access new government programs that are for their business or for them as individuals, It's really important that we as policymakers turn to those forums and understand what people are talking about so that we can learn about what's difficult to discern. 
To my mind, these digital platforms can offer valuable insights. They are part of the puzzle to understanding the economy and can help us unlock other dynamic insights. For instance, new jobs in emerging industries that we might not even have training for yet. So the real question is, how will policymaking change after the pandemic, if at all? What does it mean to get better labor market data? How do we get it? How do we use it? Who would these players be? What are their data sets? And what data did we see cited in the pandemic? There's also a universe where we're paralyzed by just too much data that could stifle our creativity and kind of stop us from moving forward on those targeted interventions that we're looking to design. So what are the benefits of incorporating other kinds of data into the policy process? Ideally, together we design better policy or achieve greater confidence in the approaches that we're taking. Policymakers at all orders of government have a unique opportunity to recalibrate their relationship to information. I believe we could and should normalize incorporating new information into the policy process, not as a substitute, again, but as a complement. It sounds like firms like FreshBooks and GoFundMe are up to the challenge. At the end of our podcast, we'd like to take a moment to celebrate the excellent work of Public Policy Forum members. Our brave new work project, and by extension, this podcast, was made possible by many partners, including our member, Employment and Social Development Canada. We're proud of their leadership and innovation in providing information, programs, and services that play an important role in helping all of us move through life's transitions. And ESDC has just introduced its new Skills for Success program, which will provide Canadians with the tools, resources, and training they need to adapt and thrive in today's changing economy. The program will provide training to nearly 90,000 Canadians in nine key areas, including reading, writing, numeracy, digital, problem solving, communication, collaboration, creativity, and innovation, and adaptability, with the goal of helping Canadians come out of this pandemic stronger and more resilient than before. That's a wrap on this edition of our podcast. I want to thank my colleagues at the Public Policy Forum and our distribution partner, National Newswatch. If you've enjoyed this episode, let us know on Twitter at ppforumca. And if you'd like to hear more about the future of work with themes like innovation in education and training, how some sectors have managed to thrive through disruption and transformation, and how we can navigate precarity and non-standard work arrangements, then you won't want to miss the Public Policy Forum's third annual Brave New Work Conference, which will be held virtually on June 22nd and 23rd. Head on over to ppforum.ca slash event slash messy dash middle to register. The Public Policy Forum is grateful to all of our Brave New Work project partners, including our lead sponsor, TD Bank Group, as well as our partners at the Government of Canada, the Business Council of Canada, the Canadian Bankers Association, Kojiko, Deloitte, the Diversity Institute and Future Skills Centre, the Metcalf Foundation, and Unifor. Until next time, I'm Vass Bednar, stepping in for Ed Greenspan, and this has been Policy Speaking, Brave New Work Edition.